All right. Yeah, lots of people, um, lots of new faces. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew. I serve on the eldership here along with Jacques and um, Debbie and Valalem and our wives. And it's great to be here this morning and to be able to, to preach to you. Um, okay, I'm going to try the clicker. I might not have enough hands for everything, but um, let me pray. Father, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that your presence is in our midst and that you desire to make yourself known to us, to reveal yourself in greater and greater measure, Father. We thank you that as we gather this morning to draw near to you, you draw near to us, Father. We thank you for that confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've been speaking about the providence of God, as you can see on the screen there. Esther, the providence of God. This is part four, the final part. Um, we've covered a lot of ground over the past weeks, parts one, two, and three, so do catch up um, in, your, in your time. I won't have time today to recap all of it. I'll just do it bullet format. Um, but we've been looking at the providence of God through the story of Esther. The providence of, of God can be a difficult thing to preach about. I can collect a lot of nice quotes and sayings, but really it, it translates much better when we look at someone's life. And that's how it plays out in our lives. In our lives, we interpret the providence of God. What is the providence of God? Um, providence of God is, is God's sovereignty at work on behalf of his people. I've mentioned it a few times, but God is sovereign, all-powerful. His providence is when he acts from that position in the affairs of his people and in the affairs of the world. It's God's sovereignty at work on behalf of his people. Um, was I pointed at you? Okay. So I'll just skip that for now. Um, as I said, do catch up on all those great quotes that I've selected there, but today we will be out of time. Um, just a timeline of Esther. In the, in the first sermon, we looked at, at a history line and just to figure out where we were, but the providence of God has been playing out in the book of Esther over 10 years. Okay, so it starts in, we looked at the Persian ruler's reign and which Persian ruler it was when all these events took place. And it was in the year of Ahasuerus, or otherwise known as Xerxes I. And all of these events of Esther take place over 10 years. Maybe I'll quickly go back to that. What's important to see from this is that the initial phases took place over about seven to eight to nine years. We've covered all of that. Where we are now today is in this last year. And what we're going to see is that the providence of God works slowly at the beginning. He sets things up over the time. But as we're going to look at the passages today, it starts unfolding at a rapid, rapid pace. Looking at the providence of God gives us perspective on our own lives. Many times we'd like God to swoop in in his sovereignty and turn all things around right now. But he, he seldom works like that. It might appear like that, but he's usually been setting it up for, for years upon years. When we look at the fall of Haman today, it looks instantaneous, but God has been setting it up for years. So take courage. Just a summary of where we've been. King Xerxes held some banquets. He called his wife forward to brag about her beauty. She didn't come. He got into a rage and divorced her, and then they selected new wives from the kingdom. 
that was Esther. Esther was then chosen as queen. Esther was a Jewess chosen as a queen of the Persian nation. The Persian nation was two million square miles. It was massive. It was exceedingly vast. It was the powerful empire of the day. A Jew became the queen over that. Esther's cousin, Mordecai, is the one who raised her. She was orphaned at a young age, and Mordecai, her cousin, raised her as his own. Mordecai discovers a plot. At one point, Mordecai is sitting at the gates, and he hears that two of the eunuchs that look after the king were planning to lay hold of him and kill him. He tells Esther the story. She tells it to the king. They investigate it. It's found out to be true, and those eunuchs are executed. And then it says, and this is important for later, that Mordecai's deed was recorded in the chronicles of the king, how he had actually saved the king's life by his faithfulness. After that, we see, we, re, we looked at last week how Haman, he was elevated to second in command to the king. He was a very, very powerful ruler, the king's prime minister, if you will, um, who, who, who gets offended, highly offended with Mordecai, and then plots a genocide, actually, against all of the Jewish people. That is how much he hated the Jews. That was, he was a very wicked and evil man. Um, what we looked at last week is, is why Mordecai would, would not bow to Haman. The king had ordered that everyone should bow to Haman and pay him reverence when he comes past. Mordecai would not. And last week, again, you can, you can go and look at it, but we discovered that there were a couple of reasons why he did not bow. And what we deduced from that is it's often more complex than that. Our call to faithfulness will come often in a much more complex format than we might imagine. We saw that part of the bowing to Haman was court etiquette, but for uh, Mordecai, who was a Jew, there was a long history with the people of Haman and the people of Mordecai. There was this Jewish identity which said that thou shalt not bow before any other gods but me. And we saw that the temptation to pay reverence to someone that was not due reverence came in a very subtle form. And we said last week that the, how we will know how to discern that is to have clarity on who we worship. More so than saying what's permissible, what's not. That was the Pharisees' type of language. The heart of the issue is to have clarity on who we worship. So anyway, Haman loses it when Mordecai does not bow, and he plots a genocide. Um, and he does it by royal decree, by an edict, which is an important word that we'll discuss again. Then we saw Esther agrees to help the Jews. So Mordecai is undone when he hears about this plot to take the Jews out. He says to Esther, Esther, you need to go before the king. And you need to make an appeal for the Jewish people. She says, Mordecai, you know that if I go to the king uninvited, I face death. Xerxes was a very tyrannical, unpredictable, wrathful ruler. Mordecai says to her, Esther, do not think that if you save yourself now, that you will be safe. You are a Jew and you will also perish. And he says, who knows, but perhaps you've been brought to the kingdom for a time such as this. And we discussed last week that the, the concept of reading providence, I'll put that in inverted, commas, in inverted commas, but being able to take, to see the providence of God in your life or in the world requires interpretation. You need to be able to interpret what's going on. But we saw to do that correctly, to interpret God's providence, you need to be close to God so that you can know and see what he is doing. And we saw Mordecai doing that in his words to Esther. He said, Esther, your astronomical rise to queenship from an orphaned Jew to queen over the, the Persian nation 
Is it so that you could live your days out, living it up as a queen? I don't think so. We don't think so, and Mordecai didn't either. He said, Esther, this is your time. This is why you are here. And he was reading providence in that sense. Um, We saw Haman reading providence as well, but in his deception and in his vanity, reading it all wrong. He was being elevated. Then he was being invited to Esther's banquets, which we see there. He thought he, he was unstoppable. He had an audience with the king and the queen, and he was the greatest in the land. And he was reading it as he's at the top and there's nothing to stop him. But he was actually being set up for a massive downfall. Okay, so that is everything that has happened. We see Mordecai's faithfulness, Esther's boldness. And we looked at last week how Esther prepares the king for this request that she must make of him. She must ask the king now. We saw the, we saw the moment where she comes into the king's throne room and he actually extends the golden scepter. We won't spend too much time on that, but she was shown mercy. And that is a, a massive moment in the story. And so she says to the king, before she rushes in and has an emergency council meeting with the king, she bides her time. She's patient. She says, oh, king. He says, what is your request? I'll give you half my kingdom. She says, can you come to dinner? Can you come to my banquet? You and Haman. And so we, we looked at last week how she slowly is patient and has a sense of God's timing. All of which is important in the providence of God. Um, just on the screen there, Michael Eaton is a, is a theologian whose books I use to, to understand all of these things. But he says all of these events, speaking of everything we've looked at up to now, will have great significance small though they seemed at the time. God takes his time and works slowly, weaving together his plans for history and for the lives of his people. If we trust his sovereignty, waiting for him to work and cooperate along the way, we too will be used for his purposes. All right, so today we are finishing the story. It might be a little bit longer, but we have to finish it. Um, Otherwise, a part five would just be a bit boring for you guys. Um, Before that, let's just see where we are. This is the last part that we read last week, and it's it's after the king has brought Haman. Esther has brought Haman and the king to her first banquet. And at that banquet, he says again, what is your request? She says, can you come to another banquet? He says, okay, we can do that. But she's warming up the king. She's very intelligent in the way she approaches things and skillful with her words. Mordecai, going home after this banquet, goes to his family, and this is what we read. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king for another feast. Yet, here we see his, his ego and his malice coming out. All of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Mordecai was one Jew who did not bow and tremble before him, yet all he's got is nothing as long as Mordecai is alive. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends say to him, in their presumption of his power, let a gallows, 50 cubits, that's 23 meters high, be made. 
And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So just on the next slide, I've already discussed that, but we have the two reading providence. We said it requires care. To be do it correctly, you have to be close to God. Haman was also reading it, but all wrong, because he hated God and his people. Haman was wickedly proud, resentful, boastful, and wrathful. Then we get into the next chapter. On that night, so Mordecai, after the first, Haman, after the first feast, goes to his family and says, he's going he's gonna to hang Mordecai. He's had enough of him. Remembering that Haman's instituted a genocide. Mordecai is going to die anyway, but in 11 months' time. But Haman wants to kill him tomorrow. Now that same night, and that's important, because now the timing is getting very fine. Before we had years' worth of preparation, now we're down to hours. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. Remember we said the chronicles are where Mordecai's faithfulness was recorded. And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Here we see God can reach anyone at any time in any place. The king can't sleep on that special night where he needs to be awake. He just can't sleep. And he doesn't call for music or conversation or anything, a glass of warm milk, or anything to get him to go to sleep. He says, I think I will do some light reading of the Chronicles. <laughs> and I'm sure the king didn't read himself. He had someone read it to him. And that person who was reading it to him read about Mordecai. And then he says, what has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? He saved my life. The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he'd prepared. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Now we sense a set up. The king wants to honor Mordecai. Haman is just rocked up there. We know that he's a glory junkie in a way self-serving all about him so we sense a setup Haman comes in and the king said to him oh sorry what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor and Haman said to himself whom could the king delight in more than me whom could he delight to honor more than me and Haman said to the king for the man whom the king delights to honor let royal robes be brought which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Now to give some perspective, the exaggerated request, it's really over the top. Had the king asked someone, had someone else been in the court, they might have got a reasonable answer to the king. But Haman thinks it's for him. We know what Haman's like. A horse that the king has ridden, you know when David was about to anoint Solomon as the next king, he said to Samuel, Take my son down on a horse that I've ridden to go and be anointed as king. It was a big deal. When Solomon, at Solomon's coronation, he rode his father's horse. Haman reckons he's worthy of the king's horse. A royal crown. 
Joseph was second to Pharaoh over the whole of Egypt, only in throne. It was it was almost just a it was a positional thing. He had a, the Pharaoh had a throne, Joseph didn't, but for all the rest, Joseph was right up there. The king gave him a ring. He, even he did not have a crown. What has Haman done to actually be so worthy of all these accolades? We don't read anything in the text of his faithfulness to the king or his service to the king. All that we read is that he's organized a genocide. But so puffed up is he that he puts this forward. And at this point, it's also worth thinking about Mordecai. We just know that Mordecai wasn't honored. Mordecai had saved the king's life. And we read in the Chronicles nothing had been done to him. Perhaps Mordecai had felt poorly treated or or shunned for his faithfulness. And this we will see over and over in our lives. The unworthy promoted and the worthy overlooked. That is powerful, the course, in our lives and in history. It happens right here. It happens. We all know it. Haman carries on. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, (laughs) the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Mordecai is still sitting outside there at the king's gate, unhonored. And this massive reversal just happens. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman in his vanity thinks that this promotion is for him, but it's actually for his worst enemy. The irony of it all is that the king doesn't actually know that Haman hates Mordecai this much. To the king's mind, Haman has sold the king the idea that the Jews are a threat to the nation and that a genocide is required for the king's security. He doesn't actually know. It's all based on one event where Mordecai would not bow to Haman. Neither of them know that Esther is a Jew. There's a whole lot of stuff at the background that the king and Haman are not in control of. There's so much happening to set them up that they are not in control of. And we laughed earlier, and what we see there, we looked at it when we studied Psalm 52 last year, we looked at a, a part there that said, the righteous shall see and laugh and fear. There is a humor almost to the way that the wicked exalts himself and how God just brings them down. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage, the people plot in vain? It says, the Lord laughs at them, and he holds them in derision. Maybe some interesting aspects about the type of glory here. Haman was after a visible sharing of the king's glory, a giving of glory to him by others, and a proclamation of the good he's done. And much of those desires lie in our hearts too. And I think for the Christian, we should also know that our Father does actually reward us with those things. When we come into his glory, we rule and reign with him. We share in his glory. Haman grabs after them to get them for himself. But as children of God, we can know that 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 does come. God is faithful to reward his children. But we do not grab at it in the same way that the world does. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. 
But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And now we see his family turn on him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Yeah, even his family can see that there is a resistible person or force to them that protects the Jewish people. We know that it's God. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now he must go to a feast after all of that shame and disgrace. So just to summarize what we see here, remember said it's finely tuned. Now we, we, we're talking matters of hours and the judgments of God are unfolding. We saw Haman's presumption and the extravagance of his proposal. But what we see here for Mordecai is delayed reward now unfolding. As I said, God is faithful to reward, but often it is delayed. And it's for us to to remain faithful and to trust in that. We see too for Haman that delayed judgment is also unfolding. He was cruising as the man to kill all the Jews, second in command to the king. God's judgments are now starting to to unfold. The Jews would have despaired and said, how can we get out of this? Well, now we start to see the downfall of Haman. We see epic reversals of fates, and we see that God is faithful to reward. Just the last scripture that I'll share on that, that summarizes it so beautifully. Psalm 37 says that the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. And we're soon going to see how Haman's sword enters his own heart. You're all still with me. All right. Banquet number two. The king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said again to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, and we see her going slowly now, using her words skillfully, hinting, slowly unfolding before the queen for dramatic effect. What has been done? Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. I underline those words because we looked at it last week. Three different words that we think say the same thing, but they actually got um, specific meanings. But Esther here is recalling the words of the edict that the king signed just the other day. And she's starting to hint at what's going on. Here, appealing to the king's self-interest, she says, If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe. And an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The sudden revelation of the enormity of what Haman has organized is put before the king. 
The king realizes that this edict that Haman got him to sign last week was the death warrant for his own wife. It was the death warrant for his faithful servant, Mordecai. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. What did we see there? Esther's patience was to her and the Jews' advantage. We saw she bided her time. In the time that she had gone to the king and this banquet, the king had just exalted a Jew high up in the kingdom, Mordecai. She and Mordecai were two very powerful Jews in a Persian kingdom. We saw that she's skillful in her words. There's a slow build-up, and then there's a sudden revelation. Haman, again another reversal, whose ego provoked him to such anger when one Jew would not bow to him, now must bow to a Jewess and beg for his life. We see that his fate is irreversible. All of those standing around him, see, the king... The king, the king, the words haven't left the king's mouth and they've got a bag over his head to take him away to the execution. I think it's not likely that Esther could even brought, have brought about a merciful outcome at that point. Um, Matthew Henry commentary, which I enjoy, so poetic. He says, the people around Haman were glad to be around him while he was the rising sun. Now that he's a falling star, they're ready to get rid of him. And so often that happens in the world. We see that from the time that Haman decreed all over the the whole nation that the Jews are to be killed, his edict, to where he dies himself is only six days. We see God working slowly and then suddenly. The Psalm 7 verse 15 to 16 says, The wicked man makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. It's exactly what we see with Haman. And I want to say there that sometimes when you read through Proverbs or we read through Psalms, we might doubt that because we don't readily see it. Often, most of the time, it looks like the wicked is prospering and having a great time, unstoppable. The righteous suffer. Those who, do, who are faithful to God suffer. But I want to say don't doubt God's justice when we don't readily see it. It may be a 10-year plan. You will see it. And if not in this life, the end of time, all imbalances will be corrected. So on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther said, Mordecai, over the house of Haman. It seems resolved now. The Jews have been promoted, Esther and Mordecai. But we must not forget, what about the edict that has gone out for the Jews' destruction? We see a small resolve here. But we looked at an edict last week, which was something that the king issued, which could not be repealed. Once the king had put something in writing, that was it. You actually can't undo that. So 
the Jews are still destined for annihilation 11 months down the line. Here we see Esther coming again before the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter to Esther. Esther rose and stood before the king. So we see another example of this. Xerxes was a dangerous king to approach and he was unpredictable. Even though Esther was his dear wife, this protocol still stood and she still could have died there if it was at the wrong time for the king. Our king, God, sits on the throne of grace. He is approachable. He is mighty and way more powerful than Xerxes, but he's approachable. By the blood of Christ, we can come to him. Esther had to appear uninvited, but we have a standing invitation with God to come before him. But we see, too, that she clothes herself. After her fast, she doesn't go to the king in her sackcloth and ashes. She clothes herself, puts on her things, and comes to him in contrition of heart, like a brokenness of heart. So, too, for us, we come to God. We clothe ourselves with thanksgiving, and we come with a humble heart, and we'll be sure of a a good audience with our king. So, the last few chapters of Esther are quite um, repetitive, but the workaround to this fearful edict is to write a counter-edict. So, the only way that the king can really turn this around is to write another edict that makes it almost impossible to carry out the first edict. And so, that is what he does. He says, Esther, I can't take this back, but... Mordecai can write something. And he, Mordecai, wrote in the name of the king, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. Again, we see the language of the first edict brought in again. Any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So, in short the king permits the Jews. He says, okay, this thing has to go forth, but I hereby now allow you to defend yourselves. And the Jews do mightily, very powerfully. And the edict goes out. Mordecai goes out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, highly exalted. And the city shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. A burden had been lifted. But they had to make ready. And they sent out the horses with the letters. And it took another seven months to prepare the Jews to spread the news throughout. That on the day that the annihilation was planned, they can actually retaliate. And they can fight for their lives. In summary, they do. Um, What we see here is that on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. We saw there the nature of the kings. How we might approach God is very different. Our, our, Our God is not like Xerxes. Hallelujah. We saw the counter-edict. In there, we also see almost an illustration. 
in a way, God's law is that sin must be punished. Well, that is his law, not in a way, that is the law. Like, God in his righteous justice must judge sin. If that was all there was, then we would be judged for our sin. Jesus is almost like that counter edict. The, the way that God addresses that is to pour out that punishment, but on a substitute, Jesus. And so he achieves salvation for us and deliverance for us from the wrath of God. We saw a lifted burden and the elevation of the Jews, again, a massive turnaround. There was permission for the Jews to take the plunder from the Persians that came to fight against them, but it says that they didn't, and they showed restraint. And it's it's just to show that this civil war that took place in Persia was not about territory or conquering or resources. It was about correcting an imbalance that had been brought in by Haman. There was great victory and there were spontaneous celebrations in the cities and the rural areas. And these Mordecai and Esther formalized into something called the Festival of Purim, which is actually still celebrated today by Jewish people. I think it was on the 16th of March this year. And we saw lots of prosperity for the Jews under Mordecai. Mordecai is exalted and the Jews have a different position. So in closing, <clears throat> what do we learn from all this? Um, I shared in, in part one how last year we looked at the question, what is God doing? That was an important question for us. And I then started to ask myself, what has God been doing? More specifically, I had to ask myself, how do I process the last two years of history? Not so much the, um, my personal life, but, but like nationally and globally. How do I process everything that has just happened? And if I had to be honest with myself, I hadn't asked God. I hadn't thought about what God is doing. I was overwhelmed by all the sensory overload of what everyone else was doing and everything that was going on. Whether it was through COVID and people got sick and people died. People lost their jobs and people died. People lost their mental stability and fell into addiction or died. A lot was lost. How do we process this? You know, is, is, what is God's view on it? Is he taken by surprise by it? Does he not know what to do? Is he uh, indifferent to it? Could any of us have really said everything is under control? You know, whether it was sickness, or riots, or protests, this, all of the stuff that was happening in our country and in the world for the past years, could any of us have said everything is under control? If we were in the world, people in the world without hope in God might have put their hope in a politician or some government to do something, just bring everything under control. But... There were lots of people doing a lot of things, but no government is a savior. And for me, even as Christians, we might have glibly said, God is in control. God is in control. But do we really believe that? And do we actually live like that? Do we live like God is in control? And I, th- I found that the, we had to process. We saw when the edict went out, Mordecai lamented. And I think for us, There's probably a lot of stuff to to mourn, actually. A lot was lost in the past two years, and we must mourn it appropriately. A lot of us like to swim in that great Egyptian river, denial, and then (laughs) 
ignore. Try and ignore what's going on. I, I tried that for the first while. Ah, this, ah, yeah, ah, yeah. But after two years, there's just so much you can deny. Um, and so there is a processing that needs to happen. But what I learned from this is, is that we must believe that God has been working in his providence. We must believe that and be able to live like that. And I don't have the answer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the way I like to say it is that the only way you can go through that process correctly is to be anchored in God. We must... When we look out on these things, we must be able to ask what is God doing and to have confidence that he is at work in the interests of his people and in the interests of his glory. But we actually won't see that. You know, if we were Esther or Mordecai in year three of the king's reign, Esther goes to the palace. She could not have known why and for what. But it only becomes clear down the line. But the importance is that we don't ignore it. We don't hide our eyes, we don't close our ears to try and survive, but for the people of God, we need to be anchored in God and be able to hear from Him what He is doing. And secondly, we saw from providence that we need to be able to cooperate with Him. The providence of God is not Him swooping in and changing everything and we just say hurrah at the end. There's a cooperation. And that is what I want to say. Um, Sorry, let me just get to the last slide there. What we see in Esther and Mordecai is a faith, a faithfulness and a faith. Mordecai has a confidence that God will bring deliverance. Esther does too, and he does. The providence of God is visible to those who have faith. We need to have that faith and that sight. The providence of God leads to celebration, and the providence of God should be specially remembered. Mordecai institutes this into a festival that's observed throughout all generations, all places, forever. We are prone to forget. We are prone to forget the deliverances that God has wrought on our behalf we need to specially remember them and Mordecai does so he makes a careful mention of dates lest at any point the Jews should think it was maybe something else a nice coincidence that all of this happened he does it so that we may remember God's work we see that the providence of God does not make life easy and in terms of cooperation Esther Mordecai and the Jews all cooperated differently if we are looking to see the providence of God we must be ready to respond to something that he would show us. Maybe by ignorance or fear we've become inactive, or we don't know. When we look out on the providence of God, God would ask something of us. We might not all be the queen. None of us here are the queen. But Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews. Most of us are probably like the Jews. That when Esther said, can you proclaim a fast, the Jews fasted. There was a response. There are small acts of faithfulness that God would have us do as he works out his plan for all time. So in closing, I close with this summary. And it says that God rules the hearts of all people and is at work, even when no one is mentioning his name. There are many events in the world which wicked men and Satan intend for evil, but he remains in control despite everything, and turns things around. At any moment, he can raise his people, bring down a Haman, set a Mordecai in high office. 
For those who have eyes to see, the God who is never mentioned by name in the book of Esther is found to be working his purpose out in everything that happens. So too in our days. God is still king. And his people will find that he works everything to fulfill his good purpose. Father, we thank you. Lord, we believe that you are in control. But we pray like the disciples, Lord, increase our faith. Help us in our unbelief. We believe factual things, but sometimes we live very differently, Father. As we see in your word, I pray that for each of us, you would anchor us in your providence, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that where we have possibly deferred to man or looked to any man for hope, you would grant us repentance that we may fix our eyes on the only Savior. I pray, Father, by your Spirit that where we have become inactive because of fear or anxiety, that by your Spirit you would strengthen us to walk in the things that you've got for us to do. You've got work for us to do, Father. You've got kingdom business that we should cooperate with. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to step out of our inertia, if that's what's on us, Lord. And we pray that you would increase our faith. We glorify you as the King of kings over all of history. Over the past two years in our nation and in the world, we glorify you as the sovereign. We glorify you as the one who is at work. You have been at work, Father. Help us to see it. Help us to cooperate, Lord. Help us, Holy Spirit. We're going to have communion now. Um, is going to lead us 